when we're reminded of how great he is, uh, the, the pressure valve can be pushed. And we can relax a little bit, amen? And realize that everything doesn't depend on us, but it depends on him and us trusting him. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And in fact, we're going to start at verse 6 and read um, all the way down to verse 21. We'll be covering up a lot of ground this morning, so of course, in doing so, uh, some, some details will, will be left out, but we'll make sure we, we hit the ones that uh, the Lord has put on my heart this morning. What you hold in your hand is not a self-help book. Um, this is the, the Word of God. It is sufficient. It is inerrant. It is majestic. It is able to revive the soul and to renew the heart. Let's read. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to man. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are held, you are held in honor, we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are. Still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ, Jesus, through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come with you? Come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness. Let's pray. Not to us, not to us, O oh Lord, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. I pray, Father, that the meditation of my heart will be acceptable to you, O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Bless the words that come forth, Lord. Let them not be mine, but yours. Let us leave this place 
sang with Jeremiah. Your words were found and we ate them. Your words became the joy and the delight of our heart, for we are called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Let me say and utter no word for my own glory or benefit. Hide me behind the cross of Calvary that your people may see Jesus crucified and resurrected and reigning in heaven. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Charles Spurgeon once said, Pride may be set down as the sin of human nature. And what the great preacher theologian meant by that is that every sin is rooted in pride. In order for us to go against the commandments of God, the will of God, the heart of God, we have to determine that we think that we know best and that we believe that we are in control. C.S. Lewis once commented and said, Pride sets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more than the next person. More than the next person. When we think about pride and when we talk about pride, it's often a result of us lusting or wanting more than others around us. We are satisfied and we are happy until someone else has something better than us. We liked our house until our sibling got a bigger house. We liked our husband until our sibling got a better husband. We liked our coworker until our coworker got a better job. Pride keeps us unfulfilled and unsatisfied. Paul is writing this letter to the church of Corinth with the hopes of deflating pride. The church of Corinth had become puffed up in pride. So he is writing this letter to the puffed up church. And we can easily take the word church out and insert something else in there. Because anyone can become prideful. This letter can be written to the church, up, the, the, the puffed up parent, or the puffed up pastor, or the puffed up student, or the puffed up child. Pride has a way of sneaking into even the heart of the best and most faithful believers. But today we're going to see how Paul ministers to a very arrogant church. And in doing so, as we learn these four principles, these four things that we see him pointing uh, and shepherding the heart of Corinth away from and, or, and, and pointing them to, we'll be able to look at our own hearts and say, yes, I am often a prideful person. And when I recognize the pride in my heart, what I need to do to, to uproot it and to get rid of it. But often as believers, we know that we don't just simply learn what the word of God says in order to hoard it for ourselves, but we are students of God's word in order that we would share with other people. So I believe that as we look at these texts and we see how Paul deflates the, the proud church, this proud church, that we will uh, see how the Lord can use us to minister to someone in our lives who is boastful. 
or arrogant, refusing to surrender and submit to the nature person of God as revealed in Scripture. Paul is finishing up an argument that lasted four long chapters. From the very beginning, he is getting to the heart of the church of Corinth, a heart that is very divisive in nature. They were exalting leaders as celebrities. They had become uh, divided in, in groups, and they were looking more like the world and less like the people of God that God called them to look. The church, God's people, were called to be a distinct people, a different people. And when someone from the outside comes in and sees us worship and, and sits in on our conversation and, and follows us around at home, they should be able to say there's something radically different about you. Not that, not that you're perfect and not that the people of God is perfect, but that they are living as if they are part of a different kingdom. So Paul is writing this letter in order to, to remind us of our distinctiveness and how when we don't follow Christ and seek his way, we become less distinctive and we lose power. So today we're going to learn that, that we must def deflate pride in order to experience kingdom power. We must deflate pride if we are going to experience true kingdom power. Not a power or, or not a, a kingdom that is about talk, but a kingdom that is about life transformation. Life transformation. So the first thing the Apostle Paul does in order to deflate the puffed up church is he points this church to the authority of Scripture. He points this church to the authority of Scripture. When we, or someone we know, is walking outside of the will of God, in pride, we must point them to the authority of Scripture. Verse 6 says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefits, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. So he starts off in verse 6, he says, I've applied these things to myself and to Apollos. What are these things? Paul has been working really hard in order to, to really uh, uh, connect with the church of Corinth. He's used some analogies. He said, listen, me and Apollos, me uh, and the rest of the ministers of the gospel, we are like farmers. We are like uh, construction workers building and working for the will of God. We are like steward, uh, servants. He keeps pointing them to analogies. He's working hard because he wants them to get the fact that as kingdom citizens, we are called to be servants, not celebrities. But he does this by leaning and depending on Scripture. Every time he uses an analogy, every time he grounds an argument in the first four chapters, he grounds it in Scripture. He quotes an Old Testament passage, and he lets that be the thrust of what he has to say. He quotes Isaiah 29 and 14. He quotes Jeremiah 9, 22 through 23. 
He quotes Isaiah 64 and 4. He quotes Job 5 and 13. Already he's quoted Psalm 94 and 11. He's letting them know that he is writing them in order to keep them under the authority of Scripture, not human philosophy and wisdom. Scripture is what keeps us from, from falling and from failing. Look at what he says, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. He's saying our lives should reflect what the Word of God teaches. And when we go outside of what our lives reflect, something has gone horribly wrong, and we put ourselves at a disadvantage. We put ourselves at a place where we can easily be broken and easily be lifted up in pride. He's looking at the church of Corinth. He's looking at all of these divisions. He's looking at how people are partial and, and have their cliques and their clans. And he's saying, this is not the way the scripture says that God's people should look. This is not the way the scripture says that God's people should live. We read in James chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, that God's people are supposed to be a unique people, a people who don't look at the status, economic status of someone. That's what James says. When a person walks in and they're, they're poor or homeless, you don't tell them to sit in the back. That's what the world would do. You don't marginalize them because of the way they look. You don't treat someone differently because they have a certain status. No, he says, no, you bring them up to the front. And you love them just as you would anyone else. And that's what, what Paul is trying to remind the church of Corinth, even in chapter 1. He's saying not many of you were noble. Not many of you were great. He's trying to remind us that the God that we serve is an impartial God. An impartial God. If a person jumps out of an airplane and they have a, a parachute on them, they're still able to experience the adventure that they wanted to experience. But they are safe and, and they, they are secure because they have a, a parachute that they're depending and leaning on and that parachute is going to help them to land home safely. When we step outside of the bounds of Scripture, it's like jumping out of an airplane with no parachute. We may be having fun, and think we're living life, but that's all going to come to an end. And as believers, when we don't submit to the authority of Scripture, we are setting ourselves up for a drastic fall, and we are walking in pride. That's what the writer of Proverbs says. He said, pride comes before the fall. So when we find our hearts being proud, we must go back to the Scripture and remind us that that's not the way that God has called God, his people to live. That's not the way that he has planned it. Second, we see that Paul points them to the grace of God, not only to the authority of Scripture, not only should we be chained to the word of God, but we need to constantly remind ourselves of God's grace. Verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So Paul seeks to continue to deflate this proud and arrogant church by reminding them of God's grace. Grace. 
his unmerited, his undeserved favor, God's riches at Christ's expense. Verse 7, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? The Christian life is a gift from God, starting with salvation. The Bible says that we were saved by grace through faith. Not of works, least any man can boast. God has given us the, the grace that we need to, to become believers, and he even gives us the, the faith that we need to accept his son's sacrifice and resurrection. So we can't be proud and boastful about being a Christian. We can't look down and, 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 and turn our nose up at people who don't know Jesus. Us coming to know Jesus is a gift from God. None of us, apart from God's grace, would want to know Jesus. That's what separates you from your lost co-worker. That's what separates you from your lost sibling. It's not that you're so good and you're so righteous and you were so smart. It's that God was so gracious. But the second thing we see is that once we have become a believer as a result of the Holy Spirit working on our hearts, regenerating our hearts, that God gives us gifts. Spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're, we're going to look at that. God gifts everyone. He gives us all a, a, a spirit-empowered talent, so to speak, that adds to his mission and the body of Christ. Now, everybody gifts isn't the same, but he gives it to us. The church of Corinth were worshiping their gifts rather than the giver. They were worshiping the fact that maybe uh, they had a gift of, of tongues or, or hospitality or, or prayer or a great voice or were great preachers. And, and rather than worship the giver, they worship themselves. And that's what pride is. Pride is an inward worship of self. Rather than looking up and saying, God, you are marvelous and you are great and you are worthy to be praised, we begin to take from God's glory and say, I'm great. People should look at me more often. They should compliment me more. They should see what I have to offer. Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? Everything in your life is a gift for God. And if it has been given to you by God, how can you boast? How can you brag? How can we turn our nose up at someone else? If it's a gift. And that's what Paul is getting to. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And that's what they were doing about the pastors that they had and the preachers that they had. They were boasting and, and bragging and finding their identity in their preacher rather than finding their identity in Christ. And Paul is reminding them, God gave us to you as gifts, not to be worshipped but to be honored and appreciated in a way that points back to God. Points back to God. Some, some people use pride as a self-defense mechanism. Some of us, we are insecure, and deep down inside, we feel like we just don't measure up. So what we do is we, we kind of begin to, to carry ourselves in a prideful manner in order to protect ourselves. 
Um, and what it is, we, we don't think that other people see our worth, or maybe we're not, not happy with the way God wants us, so we, we kind of just go inward. And sometimes that leads to, to depression, and we think that, it's a, that, oh, I'm just depressed, it's probably because I'm just so humble. No, that's pride. That's me focusing on myself more than on God. And what we want to remember is that every single person who is in the body of Christ, that we have been given a gift from God. And that gift, we shouldn't be comparing ourselves with the gift that God has given other people. And we shouldn't be trying to, to lie to ourselves and to, to put up this shield of, of arrogance um, because we desire to be like someone else and we're not. So we just kind of try to beat people to the punch or seem like we're smarter than everyone else or not take criticism well or, or not even uh, 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 open ourselves up because we just have so much pride. And really it's a result of insecurity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul encourages the church and he says these words. Verse 8, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another a diversity a diverse kind of tongues, to another an interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. God has given all of us the gifts that he has given us as he wills for the sake of his kingdom and his glory. And we need to humble ourselves and accept the way that God has gifted us. And accept that without trying to, to constantly one-up someone else or turn our nose up because we don't have what someone else has. Pride can come out in a way that boasts, but pride can also come out in a way that withdraws and that kind of protects itself from, from opening up. I like what John the Baptist said in John chapter 3, verse 27. When Jesus' ministry was really taking off and it seemed like his was decreasing, John says, as his disciples come up to him, they say, man, how do you feel about Jesus baptizing all these people? John says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it was given to him from heaven. And then he goes on to say, I must decrease and he must increase. And that's the heart of a servant. It's not one who is constantly looking for praise. It's one who is constantly looking to praise. It's not one who is constantly looking for attention in order to feel good about himself. It's one who is constantly trying to serve God's kingdom in order that others may look to, to God, not to self. So to that mother who is gifted in being a mother, what do you have that you did not receive? To that business owner who has made a great career for himself and who, who continues to be blessed financially, what do you have that you did not receive? God has gifted us and given us things in order that we would use those gifts and use those opportunities to draw people to him, not ourselves. Third, 
we see in this text, Paul points them to their own sinful behavior. So first, he points them to the authority of Scripture. Secondly, he points them to God's grace. And third, he points them to their sinful behavior. Verse 8, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. So Paul here really wants the church of Corinth to see what he sees. When a person has become prideful, it's hard for them to see that they've become prideful. When we are walking in pride, it's hard for us to see ourselves. And that's why the body of Christ is so important. That's why we need other people in our lives that can tell us, hey, you know, I, I just see you constantly walking in pride, constantly looking for opportunities to boast and to remind everyone about your accomplishments, constantly name dropping to make yourself seem important. You know, Kobe Bryant, I know Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant is a 10th cousin once removed from me, right? Because we want that spotlight on ourselves. The church of Corinth had become arrogant. They had become pride in a way that they are, some people are lifting up their preachers and the teachers as celebrities, and others are looking down at them, at the other preachers saying, well, you don't do this like he does it, so you're not really an apostle. You're not really a preacher. You don't come with the philosophy and the, and the great words, Paul, like, like Apollos does. So your, your ministry is really not as important. And Paul is speaking to that heart. He's speaking to that heart. And look at the sarcasm that he uses here. And look at the irony that he uses here in order to get them to see that they are not walking in the way of Christ, that their attitude is antichrist. He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Now, early on in the book, we know that not many of the people in the church of Corinth were wealthy. So what he's talking about here is spiritually. He's saying already you're acting like you've already made it. Like you need no more sanctification. Like I can't tell you anything about your life. Rather than being uh, poor in spirit, they're being rich in spirit. Already... You have become rich without us. You have become kings. He's saying you're walking around as if you're running stuff. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. You know, the Bible promises that one day those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, that we will reign in the new Jerusalem. Those who suffer with Christ will reign with Christ. Paul is saying, I wish that you were kings. Because then, that means that Jesus has already come back and that we're reigning together. But he throws on this language in order to get them to see the hardness of their own heart and how they have went outside of God's will for them. Verse 9, for I think that God has exhibited us, apostles last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. 
So Paul begins to point out his ministry as an apostle. And he says, I think that God has done something. And he points to an illustration. He says, I think that God has made us last, that God has sent us to death, and that he has made us a spectacle to the world. That word spectacle is where we get the word theater from. And back in the day, what they used to do in in the Roman Colosseum is they would bring everyone together for entertainment. And what entertainment was is they would get the uh, the low lives of society, so to speak. Slaves that were no longer wanted, and they would make them fight as gladiators. And everybody would pay money to see these slaves fight beasts and die, or to see them fight each other. Paul says, as one who is walking as a servant of Christ, when I'm among you, when I'm before you, I feel like you're a king, and I'm a slave, and like uh, I am a, a gladiator, so to speak. Here for your entertainment. Here for your entertainment. A spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor. We in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecute, we endure. When slander, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. This is their pastor. This is their minister. What he's doing is he's showing a a parallel between the pride that they are living in and the humility that Paul and the apostles are walking in. He's saying, we are walking in the way that Christ walked, and you all are walking as if you have already attained, and you have nothing else to learn, no other way to grow. Pride makes us delusional. As Paul said in chapter 2, they were infants in Christ. They weren't mature. But yet, they have believed their own press, and they've kind of come to a place in their spiritual walk where they say, we've arrived, this is it. We're impressed with ourselves. You are the one who has it wrong. Are you impressed with yourself? Is it hard for you to learn from others? The conversation that you're having with someone and, it, and they start talking about God. Are you listening or are you trying to think about all the things that you can say and how you can improve on what they said? Is everyone around you always wrong? Is it always everyone else's fault? Is no one able to, to minister to you? Paul is deflating the puffed-up church by pointing them to the authority of Scripture, by pointing them to the grace of God, and by showing them you all are walking in a delusion. You need to humble yourselves. But what's interesting here in verse 11 through 13, Paul really describes the life of Jesus. When we think about our king, Jesus did not live and, and come in this world in a rich manner, he was born in Nazareth. 
And he didn't come boasting and, and proudful. He walked with great humility. Paul is calling them to the way of the cross, not the way of the palace. The way of the cross is a way of humility. The way of the cross is a way that says, all that I have belongs to you. The way of the cross is a way that understands that, Lord, I am here to be on mission for you, to glorify you, not to glorify myself, and to become a celebrity. The way of a cross is a way that says, Lord, I am your vessel. I've been put in this world to bring healing to others and to bring a message of reconciliation. The way of the palace is a way that says, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, I know a little something, now it's time for me to get as much money as I can make, to get as much toys as I can play with, to go back to the hood and show everybody how great I am, what I've obtained, to show up on Sunday morning and put up this facade as if I've already arrived. The way of the palace says, I am a king. The way of the cross says, I am a servant. That's what Jesus said. The greatest among you is a servant, the one who makes themselves low. We stay in a celebrity-addicted culture, in a your-life, your-best-life-now culture. And that is a heart of pride and arrogance when we pursue that. He says, verse 13, when slandered we entreat. That's a humble heart. That's how we know when we're walking in humility. When someone can slander us and rather than slander back and fight back, we can take the low road. When someone curses us, instead of cursing back, we can bless them. When we can shop at a store that doesn't promote a, a, a picture of grandeur and a, a picture of, of, of importance and make that sacrifice for our family. So we're poorly dressed. And that life isn't about keeping up with the Joneses. The Holy Spirit, in Christ's example, it changes our heart and it makes us countercultural. We don't lust and chase after the things of the world. Our greatest goals aren't the, the goals of those who are in the world. Our greatest goal is to be satisfied in Christ. To know him and the power of his resurrection. To experience him through prayer. To see lost people come to know him. Paul is trying to revert their attention away from themselves and their own kingdom to the kingdom of God. And that's what we have to do. Fourth, we see that Paul is pointing them to their need of discipleship. Their need of discipleship. Verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as beloved children. So he lets them know, I'm not... I'm not bringing out all this, these examples and bringing out the word and, and coming at you with all this sarcasm and irony in order to shame you, but to correct you. Because he wants this church to, to be a church that doesn't move with culture, but that moves culture. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. 
For I became your father in Christ, Jesus, through the gospel. So he acknowledges, he says, you have many spiritual people that you're listening to, but they don't care about you. They're not your father. And as we read throughout the book of Corinth, we'll see that leaders have started to infiltrate in the church of Corinth, and eventually in 2 Corinthians, we'll see that they're really trying to pimp God's people. They're preachers of L.A. rather than preachers of the Lord. Did he say that? And Paul is saying, yeah, they're guys. They, they may be giving you some spiritual nuggets here and there. They may be giving you some creative philosophy, but they are not your father. What is he saying? They don't care about your soul. They don't care how you live when you go home. They care about their acclaim and their praise. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul says... I became your father. And what does he mean through the gospel? Remember, Paul spent about a year and a half in Corinth, this budding metropolitan area, this New York City type type of city. And while he was there, he worked with his hands. And every Sabbath day he went, he preached in the synagogues to the Jews. And throughout the week, he ministered to the Gentiles. And God started allowing him to see spiritual birth. People started becoming made alive in Christ Jesus. Those who were dead to Christ became alive in Christ. So God used the message of the gospel that he preached to birth them spiritually. He said, so I became your father through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus, by telling you that you cannot please God through your works and through your efforts. But the only way that God is going to be pleased if you look to the one who was perfect and who died in your place and who was raised on the third day. He said, I became your father through that message. And then look at what he says, and I urge you to be imitators of me. Now, some people think that when Paul says this, that he is being prideful. I've heard many people say that. This just shows Paul's arrogance. Why is he pointing them to him rather than pointing them to Christ. What Paul is saying is, the way that I'm living and the way that, 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 that the Lord has, has me is I'm following Christ. And you all, are babes in, you all are babes in Christ. I'm a mature Christian in Christ. Let me be a living example and a living picture of what it means to be a Christian. So Paul points them to the need of discipleship. A disciple is one who is a learner. In verse number in verse number six, he, he uses this word. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That word learn is the same New Testament Greek word that we see in the Gospels for the word disciple. So he says, I am here to disciple you, to teach you, to train you in the way of Christ. Imitate me. Think a a lot of times as Christians, the reason we are stunted in our growth is because we don't have anyone close to us that we can imitate. We do well as a a, a church in our uh, ethnic culture of bringing people in and having the best show on a Sunday morning. 
of hearing great messages, having great music. But then when we leave, we don't have living examples, people who can walk alongside us and say, hey, this is what the Christian life looks like. And spiritual growth in our lives happens when we have a, a person who is a step or two above us in maturity who can teach us how to grow in Christ. And I just want to encourage you to, to look and to find someone to imitate, to humble yourself, because a lot of times pride is what keeps us from doing it. A lot of us are just dying in our spiritual walk. We are struggling. We have been slaves to the same sin and the same issue for five or six years, for 10 years. And the reason we're stuck is because our prideful hearts won't allow us to cry out help. Some of us, the word of God, Christian thought, the Bible, that's the last thing we desire during the week. And we make excuse after excuse of why we're not following Jesus and why we can't read the Bible and why we can't know Jesus better. But at the end of the day, it's pride. It's pride because we think that we can make it through life without depending on Jesus. It's pride in that we think that we can make it through life without knowing the way of Jesus as revealed in his word, without depending on Jesus to make us <laughs> to look holy, both positionally and practically. It's pride. Some of you are dead to Jesus other than Sunday morning and maybe listening to Kurt Carr a couple times throughout the week. This is my spiritual moment, Kurt Franklin. So we play our songs in the morning, and then it's Waka Flocka the rest of the day. And it's not because we want to see what's going on in culture. It's because we love culture more than we do Christ. And it may, it may not even be as a result of us not being a genuine Christian. That may be it. It may be that we never received spiritual rebirth, that we never truly came to know Jesus. That's, that's part of it. We got baptized into water, but not into Christ. So if you look back at your life and Christ is not the center of it, it's not the one you treasure, the one you love, the one you want to serve, not the one that you want to glorify, it's probably because you were baptized into water, not into Christ and into the fellowship. If, if hanging out with other Christians is drudgery, if hanging out with other Christians is a chore, something went wrong somewhere. Make time to read the newspaper. We can't make time to read the Bible. Make time to pray, I mean to gossip, I mean pray to someone on the other line of the phone. But the only time we pray is when we're trying to make it through a, a, a yellow light and hoping the cop doesn't see us. Paul is saying, God has called you to be unique. You are a peculiar people. You have been saved, snatched from the fire in order to show off the infinite and intricate worth of Jesus. We've been called to be servants, not celebrities. 
says, in order to do that, you need someone to walk with you. You need a father. Man, you need a father. Got all these poor examples of what it means to be a man. You need a spiritual father. Someone who's going to say, to be a man is not this person that you see on TV. It's not these lies that you hear going throughout the, the, the television and throughout the radio. To be a man means to walk in the way of Christ. Walk with him. Walk with him. Look at verse 16. Feel the heart of Paul. He is pleading, man. He's pulling out all the stops because he wants the church of Corinth to look like the people of God. He says, I urge you. Look at that. I beg you. Be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. So he points to Timothy, one who Paul walked with and discipled. And he says, that's why I sent him to you. A faithful child. As I teach them everywhere in every church. Verse 18, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon. <laughs> so there were probably teachers that was there at the present moment. Apollos wasn't there anymore. Paul wasn't there anymore. And there are other teachers who I said was kind of praying on the church, and they're walking around arrogantly, probably denouncing Paul's, Paul's ministry, saying, Paul can't hoop like me. He can't holler like me. And Paul says, yeah, these people are walking around arrogantly, but I'm coming soon. Verse 18, this is funny to me. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. So he kind of, you know, he gets aggressive. And then he, gets, you know, he goes back humble, if the Lord wills, right? And look at what he says. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. So he's saying, these guys, they're talking a good game, and they're preaching. But when I come, I'm going to be looking for something very specific. That's changed lives. Changed lives. He said they could talk all day, but what I'm looking for is gospel fruit. See, the kingdom of God, life with God under his rule and care is a powerful, life-transforming experience. When God saves us and sets us apart, he begins to sanctify us progressively. That means over our lives, we look dramatically different than when we came to him. And the problem with the church of Corinth is that after Paul left, they still looked the same. They still look like spiritual infants. So he said a lot of talk is going on, but not much change. But not much change. We can talk all we want in Sunday school. The question is, have we changed? Have we changed? Are we still sitting in the same pew that we saw, sat in five and ten years ago with, with, without joining any ministries or doing any real service that matters to the Lord? 
We can talk all day. But have we changed? We can philosophize and, and quote scriptures and, and talk about how much Jesus loves us. But if our home life hadn't changed, if you're still sleeping around, hustling and bustling, laying and playing, whining and dining, you could talk all day. But somebody said, talk is cheap. When you meet Jesus, you meet power. And when we humble ourselves and use the body of Christ in a way that God has called us to use the body of Christ, we experience gospel power. Our marriage experience gospel power. Our personal walk experiences gospel power. Our daily devotion experience gospel power. Our families begin to look at us and say, you once were, but now you are this way. You once were the most impatient person I know, but now you're so patient. You once had the mouth of a sailor, but now you've got a mouth that blesses people. I remember back in the day I would come over, you will have a spread of alcohol and marijuana, but now you want to talk about Jesus. Paul says, we're going to find out who's really walking a walk and who's talking to talk. And that's some, sometimes there has to be a line drawn. Like Dross Joshua, he, he drew a line in the sand. He said, wait a minute, all who are on the Lord's side, let him come. Don't talk about coming. Come now. Jesus, when he called people, he said, follow me. He didn't say, let's just talk. He said, follow me. Walk with me. Let me see how you live. Let me show you how I live. Let me change the way you live. Is your Christian walk about talk or is it about power? 50 years and never shared your faith. Is it about talk or is it about power? Jesus offers life transformation. Life transformation only happens when we humble ourselves like a child, cry out to him, say, Lord, I need you. Lord, help me. Make me into who you want me to be. Not when we walk around arrogantly as if we already arrived. Reach out to a father. Reach out to a mother. Reach out to a sister in Christ that is where you want to be spiritually and say, help me. Tell me about your life. Tell me about how you pray. Tell me about when you read. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your gospel is a gospel of power. It is a gospel of transformation. Help us not to settle for cheap thrills, for church. Help us to believe the good news of Jesus, that Jesus changes the worst of sinners. And that you make us to look more and more like Jesus throughout our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.